Tonight is Hebrews 3 through 4. This is part 2 of our series, Leaving Religion, a study through Hebrews. And I'm going to read from you the introduction in the bulletin, as I will every week, so we can be on the same page, whether you're joining in progress or from the beginning. Leaving religion is a call to adventure. As humans, we labor to erect sturdy, safe cathedrals to protect our lives. We want easy, affordable religion, something that doesn't demand too much of us. When Rome's emperor Nero turned against Christians, Jewish believers found an easy solution, Judaism. As a religion recognized by Rome, joining the synagogue offered safety. But worship, vocation, and God cannot be squeezed into our safe cathedrals. So, Hebrews calls these believers and us into an adventure. Something costly, but transformative. To journey the long, difficult road of faith. Engaging Jesus' life means departing from religion's cathedral. And so, as we open the book to Hebrews, we find ourselves in the presence of a sermon written down to Jewish believers, probably in Rome itself, who are undergoing the persecutions in the 60s by the emperor Nero. And it is very, very, very tempting for a Jewish believer who had come out of the synagogue and Judaism to say, hey, Rome recognizes Judaism as an official state religion, meaning it is protected by the state of Rome and cannot be persecuted. Rome sees Judaism as a legitimate legal religion. Christianity, however, has been under fire since Nero has taken the throne. And so the Jewish believers could easily find for themselves the temptation of seeking the safety of the synagogue. They do worship the same God after all. We read the same scriptures after all. The only difference between us and the synagogue is that we recognize Jesus as the king of the world come to deliver humanity. And the synagogue does not recognize Jesus as such. So there's a temptation, obviously, to say, you know what? We can be closet Christians hiding out in the synagogue while the rest of the Christians are being tortured and so. The only problem with this theory is, is if you are a synagogue ruler, you recognize that Rome doesn't recognize Christians and is actually against Christians. So as a synagogue ruler... In your synagogue, protected by the Roman Empire, the last thing you want is to start harboring enemies of the state. Because then Nero is not going to be happy with your synagogue or with you. So you're not just going to let Christians come in as they are. You're going to say, hey, if you guys are going to hang out with us, we need to make sure that you publicly make it known you're not Christians. So this isn't just a little temptation to sort of be a closet Christian. I'm going to hide out in the synagogue. This is actually a full-blown, you know what? We're going to have to publicly deny Jesus, but we can sort of say, but we're still with you kind of God as we're in the synagogue. That's what's going on if this sermon is indeed being preached to Christians in Rome, which we think it is. And this is why um, this letter 
uh, it's a sermon written down for them. This is why it's being delivered to them to encourage them. Hey, Jesus is worth the journey. Yes, it's not easy, but God hasn't called us to a bed of roses. He's called us to a journey. He's called us to an adventure. That's what we signed up for. Just like Abraham, when he answered God's call to leave his family and his home to a land he's never been to. Just like the disciples, as they left their fishing business and their family, they left their nets and everything and followed Jesus at the simple words, follow me, not knowing where he's going after telling them I have nowhere to lay my head. This is what we signed up for when we said yes to Jesus. And so we find in our human nature this tendency to build for ourselves cathedrals. And the cathedral we all have either been in or still are in, and that is our religion. In the sense of we like to worship God where it is very affordable and it doesn't ask too much of me. Where I know the answers, there's certainty. I am familiar with the flow and I don't have to step beyond myself too often. Comfort. Where there's predictability, I know what I'm going to get in and out each week. That's our cathedral. Some of us find that in an identity. Some of us find that in a relationship. Some of us find that in the uh, particular answers we subscribe to about the world. Whatever it is, we all at some point, when we find God, we find comfort and we find answers. And we love to be there and to stay there. And heaven forbid that Jesus ever calls us to the next level, to graduate to the new level of following him. And that's what the Hebrews find themselves in. Jesus was the answer at first. He became their refuge, their cathedral. But now, with the persecutions coming, the call to adventure has reached them. And they must decide if they're in it for the long haul, if they're willing to go on the journey with Jesus, or if they're going to say, nope, I'm out. And we all are going to hear the call from Jesus himself to go on an adventure. And it'll be that moment when we have to step out of the cathedral. We are going to be leaving our religion, which we've constructed for our protection and security and certainty. Some of us, that's going to be uh, one of those cognitive adventures. You're going to go to a college course, or you're going to talk to some friend that believes in uh, the certainty of science, and you're going to have the cognitive battle. There's going to be an adventure there where you're going to begin to have to ask hard questions about God and your faith. Others of us, it's going to be a move or some sort of a call to a new job or a new career that's not going to pay as well, but you feel like God's leading you there. Or we got to go to this city. When we've lived in this city for so long, we've been comfortable, we know everybody. Whatever it is, there's a moment when we have to step outside of the cathedral, out of the comfort zone, and we have to say, adventure is here, and I'm answering the call. It's not unusual, though, is it, for us to refuse the call at first. Moses refused his call at first. A, a, a plethora of excuses until finally Moses says, God, please send somebody else. I don't want this adventure. I'm fine being a shepherd. I've settled. I'm okay here. I've got kids. I've got a wife. Yet Moses accepts the adventure. And now he's written for us in Hebrews 11 in what many have called the hall of faith. This is what Jesus is calling us to the journey, the adventure. Follow me wherever it takes you into the unknown, into the uncertainty, even into the darkness, but I will be with you. 
So chapters one and two open with Jesus and his greatness. And that's where we start. We start with Jesus. The first step we ever take into following him into something more, it has to be in Jesus. He has to call us. We have to trust him. We have to step with him. Now in chapters 3 and 4, as this uh, speaker in Hebrews is going to keep encouraging these Jewish Christians, hey, uh, the journey continues, and let's now turn our attention to the Old Testament, he says, and look at another journey that's happened and see where you guys are at in comparison to their journey. So, Pastor Mike read this for us in the scripture reading as we began our call to worship, and you guys heard about it. It's Israel in the wilderness about three years prior, God had delivered them mightily and powerfully out of Egypt. And they had gone with him. They had seen him provide water and manna. They've come to the Mount of Sinai. They received the law from him. And then finally, they get to the edge of Canaan, the promised land, the land where God said, I'm calling you out of Egypt, out of being slaves. And I'm calling you to this unknown land, but you're going to inherit it and you're going to have it for yourselves. And so they get to the edge of that land and they send in the spies to check it out. And sure enough, there are grapes so big that they have to put them on a stick on a pole between two people to be carried. These grapes are huge. This land is fruitful. This land is the Garden of Eden returned. It's amazing. But the spies tell the people. As big as these grapes are, there are mouths big enough to eat them. There are giants in this land and we cannot handle them. We felt like grasshoppers in their sight. And so the people begin to rebel against God's leading. And it says that they were electing for themselves leaders to take them back to Egypt. At least we knew the land of Egypt. At least we knew where our food was coming from. At least we knew what we were going to do every day when we woke up. It might have been hard, but it was certain. And it was safe. This promised land. I don't know about these giants, God. So that's what the author of Hebrews is now going to share with his congregation is, let's go on that adventure with them and see where we're at. Because we're no different. We are in the wilderness right now. We who are following Jesus, we have left our Egypt. We have stepped out. And the wilderness is that place of barrenness. It's that place where you have never been here before. And the horizon continues to stretch with more and more wilderness. Everywhere the eye can see wilderness. Have we seen that cactus before? They all look the same. This is the wilderness. And this is where we are when we follow. We we leave Egypt. And sometimes Jesus is going to call you on that adventure and you're going to leave your cathedral and you're going to be in the wilderness. And it's not a comfortable place. So this is what the author of Hebrews is going to be inviting us into. So let's read uh, chapter 3, verse 7. And he's going to summarize that scene for us here. So in 3, 1 through 6... As we had shared last week, he's continuing that Jesus is better than all the Old Testament theme. Specifically, Jesus is better than Moses. Now, with that set up, he comes to 3.7. And he's going to quote Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, and he's quoting again Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who had heard yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief belief. So tonight we're looking at trusting Jesus in the wilderness. This is what we need in the wilderness. We need to trust him. We need to realize that when we're in that place, he is leading us and he has brought us there. But the Jews who were led out of Egypt and came to the promised land in the wilderness facing the giants, but they didn't trust Jesus in the wilderness or in their case, they didn't trust God in the wilderness they began to have all kinds of doubts and they began to say, mm, you don't have your, you don't have our best interest in mind. You're leading us to our death. Our children will die. They will not inherit. And ironically, as they say that it was the children that 40 years later will inherit, but they're saying our children are going to be eaten alive by these giants. We can't make it. They couldn't trust in the wilderness. But the author of Hebrews pointing that out says that they didn't make it because of unbelief. Where are we? In our persecution, or where are we in our call to adventure? Where are we as we are in the wilderness? Are we just wandering around saying, whatever, where's Egypt? We want to go back, or are we trusting Jesus in the wilderness? Now, this idea of unbelief, we need to understand for a second. We're gonna we're gonna step aside and we need to understand what the what Hebrews is talking about when it talks about unbelief, and, and later on when it talks about faith and things like that. In our day and age, we're very accustomed to thinking of faith and belief as some sort of a cognitive agreement towards certain statements about God. So we talk, we talk about, do you have faith? And often what that means is uh, this. It's an assent, an intellectual assent. We are told these certain things about God and we agree with these. And whenever this sounds irrational, we call it faith. Wherever our knowledge is running out, like we know these things, but we're not so sure about this over here. Whenever we get into that sort of gray, fuzzy area, we call that faith. Basically, blind knowledge, if you will. So uh, you hear a lot in creation, evolution debates. The scientists are like, oh, we have fact. And then the Christians are like, well, uh, we have faith. Uh, sometimes that's how we're using faith in today's culture. And so much so, we, we associate this with this idea of, of cognitive beliefs and such that, that we actually call Christians believers and non-Christians non-believers. So basically, what makes a Christian is somebody who intellectually agrees to these statements about God. 
Now, our thinking of faith in this way has come from two major events, the first being the Protestant Reformation, when the Martin Luther gang broke off from the Catholic Church, and then uh, from Martin Luther's gang, there was many more break-offs, and they're called denominations. And what happened is, the way to distinguish one denomination from another denomination was basically, what do you believe in? And the issue wasn't, do you believe in God? The issue was, well, we believe in infant baptism, or we don't believe in infant baptism, or we are predestination people, we're not predestination people. These sorts of ideas and things became what distinguished one denomination from another. So the idea of faith began to be associated with our cognitive agreement towards a certain statement of ideas. Then comes the Enlightenment the Enlightenment, that great period where, you know, science and history was making uh, progress and accelerating and, and everything became rational. At one time, we kind of trusted everything that was given to us from authority, like the Bible. We just assumed the Bible is true and that it came from God. So everybody should believe the Bible. But come the Enlightenment. Oh, we're so much smarter than that now. We know how to study these things. We know how to critique them. And so we know all these other things like science as fact and history. And so there became this rift between um, secular studies and religion. And these you kind of have to trust, the religious things and the rest of secular studies. Well, we can see these. They're empirical. You can touch them, taste them, smell them, feel them. And so faith became this thing, again, of just this kind of like, well, we just accept it blindly in a sense. Uh, that's, that's the first idea of faith. It's, just, it's this idea of assent, this idea of agreement with cognitive statements. That is not what Hebrews is talking about. So when it says that they did not enter because of unbelief, it doesn't mean that they failed to confirm a certain set of beliefs about God. That wasn't the case. Second idea of faith that we see in Christianity is that of fidelity. Faith is fidelity. You get this idea from the word faithfulness. So if I have faith in Jesus, then I'm supposed to be faithful to Jesus. I continue on with Jesus. I walk with Jesus. I am loyal. I have an allegiance, faithfulness, fidelity. We see the opposite of this expressed many times in the Old Testament and a bit in the New too, with the word idolatry, which often is described as adultery, the idea of unfaithfulness. So the idea is that we're walking with God, we're sticking with God through thick and thin, but as soon as I stray in that sense, I am now an adulterer or an idolator. I am no longer walking faithfully or in faith. That's the second idea of faith, is that it's fidelity, walking faithfully with Jesus. That, in a sense, we see in Hebrews, he's, he is asking these believers, hey, don't just go off the deep end, keep with them, even on the adventure. But that is not exactly what he means here. He says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The third use of faith in Christianity is the idea of vision. Faith gives us eyes to see. And what it gives us eyes to see is who God is, who we are, and the world he's put us in. In some ways, it's kind of like a worldview. And in other ways, it's sort of when you say the faith, like, are you of the faith? Like, that's the idea. It's just the whole shebang all together. And it's just the way we see ourselves and the world and God. That is another way that we use faith. But that's not the way faith is being used here in Hebrews either. So there's this ascent, faith as ascent, there's faith as fidelity, there's faith as vision. But fourthly, the fourth way faith is used in Christianity is trust. 
And that's the kind of faith that we are dealing with in Hebrews, is the idea of trust. That we, if you are to imagine yourself in an endless sea, as far as the eye can see, nothing to hold on to. There are two ways to go about that situation. You can freak out and panic and thrash and flail your arms around until you sink. Or you can relax and rest in the water and trust buoyancy to keep you up. And that's what faith as trust is. It's that moment when we let go and we trust the buoyancy of God. We allow him to let us float. And when we're in the wilderness, we feel like we are trapped in the middle of an endless ocean. There's nothing to grab on. I don't know anything anymore. I'm not familiar with anything. There's nothing I can feel for a point of reference or orientation. And we can either thrash about and try to make sense of why we're here and where this is going and where we're ending up. And why did I sign up for this? But you will sink. Or we simply let go. We rest. We relax. We trust in the buoyancy of God to keep us afloat. That's what the author of Hebrews means when he says that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This kind of faith isn't believing in statements about God, like assent, intellectual assent, not believing in things about God. This kind of faith, trust, it's believing in God. And so when we don't hold this kind of faith, we are actually making an offense against the person of God himself. God can understand if I cognitively struggle with certain claims, a virgin birth. Some people might say that's hard to believe. That's okay if it's hard to believe. That's a cognitive issue. But this kind of faith, when Jesus says, step with me into the wilderness, and we say, no, you're saying I don't trust you. And that's an offense to his person. So much so that we see this idea carried in our passage. Notice with me the words that parallel this idea of unbelief. They were unbelieving. So what does that mean? They were doubters? No. They were idolaters? No. They... They had a lack of vision? No. It means this. Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Or repeat in verse 15. Rebellion. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Look down at 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Because to those who were disobedient. Um, jump down to verse six, the end. They failed to enter. I'm sorry, four verse six, that is four verse six. They failed to enter because of disobedience. And there's the golden ticket. Didn't he just say they failed to enter because of unbelief? Yes. Now four six, they failed to enter because of disobedience. This is a lack of trust in the person of God. So that when we say, no, I will not step out. It's actually disobedience. And then it's further clarified in verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is trusting Jesus in the wilderness. Are we going to keep walking with him? Or are we going to thrash about and try to find our way back to Egypt? The wilderness is hard, isn't it? Some of us know we've been in those places Some of us are yet to experience the wilderness. 
The wilderness is hard because it tests us. As it tested Israel over and over, it tests us. The wilderness is that place where our weaknesses are unearthed, where they become revealed, they become obvious. It's in that wilderness when we find out who we really are, what we're really made of. We find the limit of ourselves. Because you see, when we sit in the cathedral and we sit with the same old songs or the same old messages that pat us on the back about God and we're comfortable with the same people and we're never urged outside of ourselves, we never have to serve, we never have to sacrifice. When all of those things are happening in the cathedral, you know very little about yourself. But it's when we have to step out, it's when we have to go in the wilderness and we're tested, we feel resistance, and we have to push through. That's when you find out what you're made of. That's when you find out your strength. That's when you find out your weakness. And that's why the wilderness is hard. Because all of a sudden, we don't like what we see about ourselves. And if it's hard enough to go through the wilderness, wait till you get to the edge, right on the threshold of the great promise God has for you on the other side. Because when Israel got to that threshold, that's when the ultimate test came. That's when the ultimate test of trust was before them. There are giants, yes. Oh, they're there. Do you trust me? The giants, when we meet those in the wilderness, they reveal the deepest parts, the darkest parts of ourselves. And more often than not, we're going to find unbelief is that dark little space deep inside of us that we refuse to leave the cathedral or we have a hard time trusting Jesus in the wilderness because we are deep down inside distrusting, disobedient unbelievers. Again, I don't mean we're distrusting and uh, unbelieving in some cognitive sense, like God saying, come on, get your theology class together, take a Bible college class, strengthen up. That's not what he's saying It's are we willing to just rest in the buoyancy of God to let go no matter what is before us? Deep down inside, we have a hard time. We almost frankly refuse to trust God. Because that means I have to let go and I'm not in control. And that is the most terrifying place a human being can get to. When you stare at that giant, And God says, well, you know what you're supposed to do. What? And you have to go forward. That's the moment when all of us find out what we're made of and what's inside. That's the moment when the giant is right there. Do I trust God and am I going forward? Or is there unbelief in my heart? And am I going to say, all right, find me someone to get me back to the cathedral because that was so much more comfortable. If it's a Jew in this time period, it's the the synagogue. If it's the Israelites back then, it's Egypt. And for you right now, it's your cathedral, whatever it is. But it's in the face-to-face encounter with that giant, you find out right away, what am I going to do with the unbelief in my heart? Am I going to let go and trust? Or am I going to find a way back to Egypt? And every adventure goes through this. This is the definition of adventure. We looked at the beginning how all of our heroes and stories and so forth are always called to the adventure. There's always this initial resistance like, ah, no, I'm totally fine with my small life. And then finally something pushes them over and they're like, okay, I will go. I'll go destroy the ring or okay, I'll go save the empire or whatever it is. They finally volunteer themselves. They get pushed into it, whether voluntarily or by force. And they go... And then there's that point of no return. And that's when you're in the wilderness and it's like, you're all hyped up adrenaline. Yeah. Like, Oh, this is really hard. 
and I go through this series of tests. <clears throat> and then there's always that moment, and this is when it gets exciting. There's always that moment which movie makers call the inmost cave or the approach to the inmost cave. And that's where there's that dark place that no one's been to. Your hero especially hasn't been there. And lurking inside is the darkest, deepest fear. It might be a dragon. It might be a confrontation with your true self. It might be, in other narratives, uh, the father that you never got along with. But there it is. And it's in that approach of the inmost cave that the hero has to decide, I'm seizing the sword and I'm going forward. Or, yeah, I'm going back home. And this is where the Christians that the Hebrew author is speaking to are at. Persecution's coming. The inmost cave. What are you going to do? And this is where we, when Jesus calls us and we're in the wilderness, we're going to get to this point. And we have to decide it's Egypt or it's trust. So that's the wonderful thing. Is that if we decide to trust Jesus, we know how the narrative ends. Because he's shown us. We saw what the Israelites did when they finally were courageous enough to enter the promised land. They took the giants down and they entered into God's rest. But we also see what happened when they decided, nope, we don't trust you. We're going back to Egypt. Well, they did the 40-year death march. And it led to their death. And that's what happens is unbelief and the seeking of comfort and security always leads us to the same circle over and over where you're just going to spin out the same mundane life and that's death. You're going to die before you die, before you've ever actually lived. But when we face the giant, we come to the inmost cave and we seize the sword and say, I trust Jesus. That's when, yes, there will be a moment of struggle. It's going to be hard. It's going to be extremely terrifying. But on the other end of that, we know it's there. It's the promised land. It's Eden. It's Canaan. It's the rest of God. And so here's the threshold we find ourselves at. You face the giant and you can either say, nope, I don't trust. And you go into chapter three. This whole disobedient generation, I swear they won't enter my rest. Uh, They've hardened their hearts against God. That's chapter three. It ends in death. But chapter four is for those who face the giant and say, I trust. I'm going to just relax in the buoyancy of God here and see where this takes me. And they go in and the glorious promises of chapter four happen they enter the rest of god so therefore chapter 4 verse 1 while the promise of entering his rest still stands in other words this rest wasn't just a promised land thing for the israelites back then this rest of god was there but it's continuing and there's a place there's a promised land for all of us and he wants us there so while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as to them, the Israelites in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, we who have believed, have entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, 
They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So we just got an insight there in verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6, and 5, what this rest looks like. It's the rest that God entered on the seventh day of creation. In other words, he created the world, the universe, from days one through six. And on the seventh day, it became his home. He rested. That's a Hebrew phrase for entering into. He rested into this creation. He dwelt there. And it's where the world was right, the seventh day. He blessed it. God was with man on the seventh day. Harmony, unity. It was after this that things went wrong. This is what the author's saying. That's the rest he's inviting us into. That's the rest Israel had a chance to go into. That's the rest we have a chance to go into. So that's why he's emphasizing, look, the same promise stands to us today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not refuse the call to adventure, but say, yes, I'm going to trust you in the wilderness. I'm going to follow you. That's the call. So verse 6 since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, says, saying through David, the writer of Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So just all that, just recapping what we've gone through. God is still offering the rest to us. And it's for those who are able to just rest in the buoyancy of God, just to trust him. Okay, so... That brings us now to verse 11. And this is where he gets very exhortive. This is where it gets very exciting. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Strive because it's not going to come about naturally. Oh, I'm just floating through my Christian walk with God. The wilderness is hard to get through. You got to strive. So you got to keep trusting. So therefore, let us enter that rest, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We won't repeat Israel's disobedience. And here it is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So let us strive. Let us trust Jesus in the wilderness. Let us trust him when the giants come face to face with us, when we reach the inmost cave. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the exhortation. You have been given the sword that you need to enter into the inmost cave. The dragon that awaits has nothing to this two-edged sword. And that's why we can trust. Because he hasn't just left us alone. He says, when you get to that cave, here's the sword. Seize it. Go forward. I've given you what you need to move in and conquer 
But on the other hand, as comforting as that is, a two-edged sword works two ways. And so on one hand, it is for victory if we take it. But on the other hand, as we learn from the generation of Israel that rebelled, if we say, ah, I'm going back, there's a sword there too. And it's not in your hand. It's in some sort of opposition's hand. That generation, he emphasizes, died on a 40-year death march in the wilderness, circle after circle. That was their sword. Rather than wielding it in victory and moving forward in trust, they were pierced by their own lack of faith, their own unbelief, because they were not willing to confront the darkest, deepest part of their unbelief and say, Father, forgive us, let us trust you. So this is an exhortation. It's a challenge. It's on one hand, you have a sword, go march on, trust Jesus. And on the other hand, it's, if you don't take that sword, there's another sword and you can fall on it if you want. So we're left with this decision. We see the two options. We're walking through the wilderness. We face the giants and instantly there's only one of two options. This church that the Hebrew writer is talking to, they're going through their wilderness. Nero's persecuting. They've come face to face with the option, Nero himself. What are we going to do? You right now, you may have been courageous after last week. You're like, I know what God's been telling me to do. I'm going to step out into this adventure. And you've been going through this week and it's been the wilderness. Like, oh man. And now you're facing the giants. What are you going to do? He's given us a sword. He's given us a trustworthy account to trust. What are you going to do? We can either thrash wildly in the wilderness, angry, hoping, yearning to return to our safe Egyptian cathedral, or we can just let go and let the buoyancy of God carry us through whatever may come. He will see us through. Next week, we are going to start in 414. And this is a perfect place. The author says, okay, now that I've left you at this invitation, you need to know who your hero leading you is. And he's going to spend chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 telling us all about this hero and what he's done to be worthy of our trust of him in the wilderness. And if it doesn't sound that exciting, here's just a little sneak peek for verse 14. I won't comment, but you will see exactly why this is good news. Here's your hero for verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are yet without sin or without rebellion or without failure. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us on adventure, not just, not merely to test us, although that happens. Jesus calls us on adventure to grow us. And it is only by going through the wilderness and facing the giants and trusting him that we grow. Again, he's not doing it to taunt you. Oh, see, I knew you had unbelief in your heart. Now you know. (laughs) He's not taking us through the wilderness just to leave us there. He's taking us through the wilderness to grow us. 
Every weakness that is revealed within us is meant to show us so that we can turn to him in trust, so that we can take the sword he's offering us in confidence. That's the purpose. So we can either continue to march around the wilderness in 40 years of death and making no progress, or we can press on into his rest and find that Edenic unity and harmony that he's created us for. So you are approaching the inmost cave. You've been given the sword. Will we trust him through the wilderness or will we seek the comfortable cathedral of Egypt? So may the peace of Jesus go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you in the storm. And may he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Let's pray. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, pardon Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is error, truth. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Guide us on the adventure you call us to, in Jesus' name, amen.